Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's going on, everybody? MC Ryan's got us dialed in. Our sound should be pretty darn precise here, which is fitting on account of the fact that we are talking to two men across the table from us right now that are involved in arguably one of the most precision shooting sports out there. We're going to be talking about some F-class shooting. Now, we have Ian Clem. He's been on the podcast before, which is pretty sweet. And we, we don't always get to get him out of, his, out of his deep, dark engineering hole in the building. But when he does, he comes out and he drops some serious knowledge bombs. So you guys know him. Across from me here, and those of you watching on YouTube, you're probably already dying to hear about these amazing-looking firearms on our table. But across from me here, across from the red rifle, is Niles. And Niles is, uh, is a friend of ours. He's, he's been around Vortex for a while. And uh, he, though he does not work at Vortex, he's local to us. And he is also an F-Class competitor. So I, I'll try not, as, as usual, I'll try not to do all the introductions for him here. But Niles, will let you maybe uh, give the listeners out there a quick idea of who you are, what you do, any fun facts about yourself. Okay. My name's Niles Richardson. I'm out of Spring Green, Wisconsin, not too far from here. And I met Ian a couple years ago through mutual friends here at Vortex. And I was shooting some 1,000 and 1,200-yard stuff over at Lodi. And I wanted to do something a little bit more than just shooting and ringing steel at a, at a long way. So uh, I was introduced to Ian. It was about two years ago, yeah, I think. Yeah, I'd say so. And I said, hey, I'd like to, I think I'd like to get into this FTR, which is, I'll let him explain a little bit, but we shoot 308s. Out and a thousand yards, and there's some other stuff too, and and so I'm just starting. I'm I'm brand new to it, hmm. but it's taken me two years to get to this point. Okay, so I, I met with Ian, and I followed Ian around that year to the matches, and when he won his uh, national champion, uh, yeah, his national championship at Lodi, and then I bought his old gun and sort of started changing it a little bit with a stock that fit me and put a different trigger on it, but he helped me set it up, and we've been training pretty much most of last year, and he won the national championship again, so this year is my year to actually get to shoot side-by-side, side, I guess, you know, on the same cool. matches this, this spring. Very so cool. let me get this straight, though. So Ring and Steel at 1,200 at some point became child's play. Not enough. And you need, okay, needed something a little bit more precise. Got it. That was my first indication that he might be nerdy <laughs> enough <laughs> for so. me to take him under my wing. And, you know, if you were one of those kids that you took your animal crackers and you segregated them by species and then <laughs> ate them one at a time, Head you first, might be an phylum, shooter. Genus. Exactly. I, make, I'm, I actually am saying any scientific word that I <laughs> um, But that, you kind of, you kind of allude... To a point where this F-Class thing, now we've talked about PRS on the podcast, we've talked about 3-Gun on the podcast, a lot about hunting, recreational shooting, stuff like that. The sport of shooting, recreationally, and even many of the competitive sports out there, uh, we haven't gotten into every competition shooting sport, but it's not a difficult one to get started in, necessarily. This one, on the other hand, though, you said you're, you're here after about two years, Niles, F-Class probably isn't for somebody who's kicking the tires of competitive shooting and they just, ah, I just want to try something, right? I mean, like, 
it could be my personality. Okay. I'm kind of, when it comes to shooting, I really want to get everything dialed in. I don't like making a kind of a fool of myself, but you can. I mean, I think you can go out and buy a Savage FTR gun. In 100%, percent, yeah. For really? really cheap and go out there, scope it up, and go, go, go crazy. Okay. I, on the other hand, I picked his brain every time we'd get together. It got really nerdy about some, if you watch me reload, I have a, a scientific scale, and we're talking half a kernel, you know, weight charges. You're so splitting that, kernels? Yeah, so that it's exactly the same. Do you okay. get like an explosion when you start splitting kernels? <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you seriously have a little razor blade and you cut the kernel? What I do is I look at the kernel of, yeah. of, the, of each powder, and you can see the size difference in them. No. And so I'll... You've got a little oh, you'll hand small kernel, big kernel pile. Right, right. So I'll just take a small kernel. <laughs> the animal cracker thing is true. It is. Totally is. So it, <laughs> you need a 12-step program, but you're perfect for F-class. So that's what I do. And then wow. after talking with Ian the first year, I went out to a, a class that's taught by a group that actually Ian's involved with in the spring and the fall of every year with Applied Ballistics with some great shooters. So I took my vacation and flew to Utah by myself to sit and talk ballistics for 48 hours straight with some of the best shooters in the world. You're made for it. Yeah, so, so picking his brain yeah. and, and, and some of the other high-class shooters' brains, I I just want to be prepared when I go out there. So when my reloads, he's like, okay, quit playing with your reloads. They're good enough. <laughs> you know. So now what I, I do when I shoot is take notes every day when I'm at Lodi, when I shoot for the wind and everything else, because now I've got the gun, which he's won numerous things with. So it's not the gun. It's not the scope, which... Ian Design, give him credit for that. Everything is set up, so now it's just me. And to be that, you got to be consistent from the start to finish. So all my reloads are as consistent as I can get. I use the same lot of powder. I use the same lot of brass, the same lot of primers, same lot of bullets. I point them all the same way. They're all resized the same way. Once they get four reloads on them, they're done, and I start over again. Okay. So I don't anneal and some of that other stuff, but I, you take notes as if you clean the brass, how does, how does it shoot compared to unclean brass? You take notes, you know, how does the gun shoot after fouling? How many rounds does it take to foul it? You know, so I get, I, I'm really nerdy. I mean, You actually I, know at what point your firearm is fouled versus unfouled. Right, you can tell when it starts, the, the, the bullets start coming together, and you get a, so you know that that gun's ready to shoot I wish for, I, for scores. I wish I had the, the Instagram name of the person who asked that question, but shout out to you if you're listening. Somebody asked, they said that they heard that if you get a clean rifle, like a brand new rifle out of the box, that you should foul it prior to, you know, assuming that it's, it's spot on. Yeah. And, and Ian can right? talk to you about, he's got a brand new gun that you're not even shooting yet in competition, just to get it to where it needs to be competition ready. If we can if we can take just a step back for a second, though, because I think there might be some folks listening out there that are asking themselves, what the F yeah. is F class? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, we I should. Am. Yeah. So, Thanks, Mark. We maybe, told uh, these guys, we told these guys to get nerdy on us, which I well, think they should. I, I went off, they should. I went off and, the edge. No, so, they, this is Judging good. from the first... Two minutes, I think we're going to get there. I think we're going to get there. So, yeah, folks, buckle in. Uh, But, yeah, good point. So, uh, 
we'll talk about what F class is. <laughs> What's F class? So F class is one subset of something that's called high power shooting. You guys have heard of high power shooting at all? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will say um, across the course shooting or service rifle shooting. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of different kinds of high power. But high power is it's a organized formal competition run by the NRA in this country. And sometimes the NRA, like if you're talking about Australia or, or another country, you know, their version of the NRA. But it's basically um, shooting at a known distance at a paper target with a uh, bullseye, with concentric rings. It's a score game, right? So you're trying to maximize your score. But it differs in terms of the sub-discipline based on, you know, um, like a service rifle would be three positions. It would be standing it'd be prone, and it would be either kneeling or sitting. And they use, hence the name, they use a battle rifle. So they Mm -hmm. use an AR-15. It's supposed to be representative of what the military is training with. So a couple years ago, they caught up with optical sights, and now they allow optical sights on service rifles, which is uh, a little bit more representative. Before then, it was all iron sights. There's another uh, rifle classification within high-power shooting, and it's only prone, and it's called match rifle. And those use... Instead of scopes, uh, predominantly they use aperture sights. So that's when you see like oh, yeah. the micrometer adjustable aperture sight on the rear and then like a globe ladder sight on the front. And um, those guys uh, can use, you know, slings, um, a shooting jacket. I believe they get one lens that they can put in either their front sight, their rear sight, or they can wear it on their eyeglasses. What so, would that do? Well, it kind of magnifies your sight picture. So it gives you just a little bit more resolution for um, lining up on that bullseye target. Yeah, it's interesting. They actually huh. put a lens in their sight. With irons, yeah. Yeah, with, with aperture sights or iron sights. A, a pretty sophisticated type of iron sight. Yeah. So what happened was, uh, you know, this sling shooting was real popular, has been for a long time. But there was this competitor up in, in uh, Canada named George Farkason. And he said hey, listen, I really want to keep competing, but um, I can't focus. I can't get a good sight picture with these aperture sights anymore. Is there something we can do? Can we start a new class that allows people to continue to compete even though they can't focus on their iron sights anymore? And they started what was what we now know as F-Class. And F is for his last name, Farkason. But it had this weird unintended consequence, and that was it would quickly become more popular with all age groups than the original sport that it spun off of. Hmm. So now you have what you see in front of you is kind of the modern-day F-class rifle, and this these two rifles fall into one of two categories uh, called FTR, TR for target rifle, or okay. F-open, and open is for any caliber 35 or below to make a car reference, because, Jimmy, I know you appeal to some car yes. uh, analogies. This would be like stock car racing. Okay. And F-Open would be like top fuel dragster, maybe. So it's a little bit unlimited class. There's weight limits to it. So this has to fall under eight and a quarter kilograms, which ends up being roughly 18 pounds. And that includes everything that moves when you lift the rifle straight up. So that would include the bipod, oh. um, hmm. anything else that's attached to the rifle. What would be something that wouldn't move when you pick the rifle up? So the mat that you shoot on, okay, the shooting mat. And then we use like a rear sandbag for the rear of the butt. And if that didn't move when you picked it straight up, you'd be good. You wouldn't have to include that in your weight. Noted. Now for the F open, for those top fuel dragsters, they get 22 pounds. So four pounds more, roughly. 
and they can shoot off of a mechanical front rest that maybe you see when you go to the range. It's like a tripod, three points of contact type of rest where they can sort of dial in some elevation and some windage. Do they bolt those into the table too, or is that no? They've they got don't. they've got like spiked feet. Okay, and they kind of like press them into the ground if they're shooting off of dirt or gravel or whatever. And those spiked feet kind of help it from, you know, they're pretty heavy too, so yeah. they don't really move when you shoot them. Which is kind of interesting because, I mean, that's, you know, these are almost like little mini skis. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The the bipods for those listening right now that are on these guns in front of us, like Mark said, it it, it's, it, it reminded me of uh, like a snowmobile. Yeah. yeah. Because you got the, you have the rear butt of the stock is resting on the table right now. And then you have these big bipods that stick out of the side and they have these snowmobile looking skis. Yep. So the theory there is if you want to shoot well at long range, there's two different ways you can cope with recoil. One is the more traditional way, and it works real well with like your Harris and your Atlas folding bipods that have rubber feet, is to try and fight the recoil or resist the recoil. Mm -hmm. So those rubber feet are meant to grab the ground, and you kind of, you've heard of preloading bipods, Mm -hmm. like to make a good shot when you're hunting. You lean your shoulder into that rifle, you preload the bipod, you hyperextend the legs, and that gives you a little bit of travel within those legs as they rotate before they lock out and the rifle starts to lift off the ground. And in that time that you've preloaded, the bullet will leave uh, the barrel and you can't influence it anymore and you end up making a good shot. The other way to make a good shot at long range with with a, a bipod is to go with the recoil. And that's why these look the way they look. So in that sort of uh, regime, you're, you're promoting the rifle to move rearward. Yeah, so these skis are on here so that that movement is predictable, repeatable, smooth, and they sort of track uh, on grass or, mm-hmm. um, you know, a fabric surface of your shooting mat. If you notice in the back here, it's hard to see, but you can kind of feel it, Mark. There's like this Teflon tape okay. that's sure. on yep. the butt. So that works in concert with those skis on the bipod to resist uh, friction on the rear bag. Oh, okay, right. Yeah, so when you shoot, you're hoping, you're you're planning for this rifle to move very smoothly rearward and I've done the calculations, and it actually moves about a sixteenth of an inch for the 308 in a 30-inch barrel before the bullet is gone, before it's left. How in uh, the heck did you do that calculation? Yeah, it has to do with uh, acceleration of the projectile and, and um, its terminal velocity when it leaves the barrel and things like that. And also the... Rack- I'll explain it to you later, Jim. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the moment of inertia of the rifle itself. So this package weighs right at the limit, you know, 18 pounds. So it's going to have a certain amount of inertia before it gets going. And then you factor in the coefficients of static friction between your bipod and whatever it's resting on hmm. does yeah. that change with depending on what it's resting on totally do you know the coefficient of friction for grass and fabric and dirt and i've got it all i've got it all listed yeah, <laughs> yeah so perfect um, yeah, i mean these, these bipods are super interesting one thing that's you know pretty obvious when you're looking at it as well is it's got a pretty wide stance yeah there, you yes. know versus you know maybe a more traditional like folding bipod that you're talking about is that providing you know i guess an extra layer of stability or, or I guess, what, what's the reason for that? Yeah, so it's kind of like, um, what are those boats, catamarans they call them? Oh, yeah, with, sure. With like big outriggers and mm-hmm. pontoons. So we shoot relatively heavy bullets. Okay. You know, since, we're, since we're trying to shoot as good as we can and resist the wind as well as we can, we shoot heavy for caliber bullets. And 
because they're long and they have high BCs, we have to twist our barrels pretty fast to stabilize them. So what happens gotcha. when you twist a barrel real fast, you have now a moment of rotational inertia from the bullet that it imparts on the rifle. As oh, because the, rifle the rifling is contacting the bullet, so exactly. the bullet is putting an torque. opposite, yeah, like a torque on the barrel. Yeah, it's almost like a pure torque. Like if we had a high speed and we could do some shooting for this episode, you would see you'd probably see, you know, the right ski lift off the ground just a little bit while it's recoiling. Okay. And that's the reaction force that you're getting. It's the reaction moment, actually, that you're getting Incredible. into the rifle from the bullet. So the wider you can make this, the more you can resist or your overturning moment that this is pressing on against the ground is a little bit better. So you've got a longer moment arm that you can resist that torque with. Okay. But as with anything, you know, humans, when they when they compete against each other, uh, we're all pretty type A, pretty competitive, so they had to make a limit on how wide this could be because <laughs> they started getting wider and wider. That was my next question. <laughs> and it was a little bit ridiculous, right? You know, you've got this thing that's starting to become a little less practical than, than everyone would admit that they want it to be. So they put a limit on how wide it can be, and I forget, it's like 22 inches or something like that. So okay. still not something that you'd see in the field, obviously, but uh, at least it's providing like a solution space that people have to stay in sort yeah. of like any stock car racing you know yeah so when you're when you're shooting an f-class f-class competition and we'll get back into the rifle for sure because there are so many more things we need to talk about on these rifles as i'm looking at them what does the competition entail you're shooting like you said 308 to paper targets that are pretty far away yeah is it like i think of a three-gun course of fire and it's like shoot the targets don't miss any do it as fast as you can yep that's oversimplified. What are you guys trying to do? How far away are these targets? Is there a set distance that you usually find the targets at? Yeah. Is the main challenge just being as accurate as you can, or are there other involved challenges, like are the targets ever moving or, or anything like that? Great or? questions, yeah. So uh, quick disclaimer, I love competitive shooting. I think all these sports are really, really cool. I respect a lot of the the um, skill sets that it requires to do well in three gun as well as PRS and things like that. And when when you look for commonality within those shooting sports, you ask yourself, well, what's what's keeping me? What what are my main challenges as a as a shooter? And you know, the thing that contributes to the most uncertainty when you're shooting long range is probably distance. So if you know the distance you already have a big leg up, right? So this is known distance shooting. Uh, Mid-range is classified as 300, 500, 600 yards. And then they've got long range, which is 800, 900, and 1,000, and sometimes 1,200. That's more of an exhibition, but normally it tops out at 1,000 yards. If you're overseas, it'll be 900 meters, which is really close. It's about 990 yards. So we know the distance. You go to a PRS match, they tell you this target is so far away. You kind of know the distance there. If you're on a long-range hunting trip, you've got a rangefinder, so you can figure out the distance there. So they're mm-hmm. all pretty common in terms of that. What's the next biggest influential factor for creating a miss? Probably the wind, right? Mm-hmm. So you guys do a lot of long-range shooting on your own, right? And when you guys are out there recreational shooting and you're missing at 1,000 yards, oftentimes it's because of the wind. Oh, yep. yeah. So we're definitely trying to figure that out, right? The wind... Or mastering atmospherics is probably the number one challenge for F-class shooting. So, Would you say even more so than just being a good trigger puller? If I had to break it down, you'll get some, everyone's got their own opinion, but I would say that it's 30% determined 
at the loading bench, maybe. Hmm. So how well you can produce really good performing ammunition that works well in the rifle that you've got. If you're splitting grains. If you're splitting <laughs> grains, yeah. Or, I'm sorry, kernels, not grains. Right, right. Yeah, kernels. Yeah. Yeah, kernels. Don't insult the man, Split, Yeah, <laughs> splitting grains. Jeez, what is this, right. kindergarten? And I'd say the rest is what we call wind reading or just sort of like assessing the atmospherics and then consistently making better decisions than the men and women on the line with you at that particular time on when to shoot, where to aim when you shoot. And that's the real pleasurable part. That's that's the real challenge and, and what kind of separates the field when you're competing. So it, it all has to come down to, um, you know, wind reading. And it's kind of cool because... You know, we build these fancy rifles and, you know, that gives us confidence and there's a little bit of placebo effect probably there, how we think, you know, the rifles are going to are gonna perform really well, and they do. But you can't really whip out your checkbook and, and win a big match. You have to mm-hmm. practice. You have to develop that skill set. And for me, it's F-Class is sort of an excuse to, to obsess about something. You know, I've got sort of an obsessive personality where I... I want to dive deep into something. I probably couldn't be good at many things concurrently. So it allows me to do that. And then if I think, well, if I can build that skill set of wind reading, maybe that would help when I go for my next hunt. Or maybe that would help, you know, in a different application. So that's kind of like my drive. But to answer your original question, yeah, it's lying prone, getting roughly 60 seconds per shot, so nothing like three-gun in terms of, you know, having to race. So there is a time limit. There's totally a time limit, but they'll say, you've got 22 minutes for two sighting shots and 20 rounds for record. Uh, Your time starts when your target appears. Sighting shots and then... then yeah. What was shots for record or what was that? Yeah, yeah. So so you pretty much always get sighters. In the in the United States, it's either unlimited sighters or two sighting shots. Overseas, it's usually two sighting shots that you can convert for record if they if you like the result of them. Oh, um, that's pretty slick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you're given the option, you'd be like, actually yes. no, I started. That's like when you're shots. with your buddy out at the basketball court and you're like, Let me try this hook shot. This is just a warm up, it's not serious. <laughs> and then you sink it and you're like, Okay, I was trying. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Now it's your <laughs> turn. <laughs> playing horse yeah. Now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the rules for the for the convertibles are you can convert your second shot or you can convert both sighting shots. But you can't just convert the last one if you like that one without the, or I'm sorry, the first one if you like that without the second one. Okay. But okay. anyway, it's it's your one chance to gather some empirical data before you go for record. Going for record means, all right, every shot from this point on counts. Yeah. And your time starts. Your time is is uh, you know it might be 20 minutes for for 20 shots, but uh, that includes your sighters. So a big part of what I've found is a big part of uh, the fun of it is strategy. So within 20 minutes, the wind really changes a lot. So why is that important? Well, there can be good times to shoot and bad times to shoot. If you see a storm front coming in, but it's just a squall out west, and you know it's going to pass in about five to eight minutes, sometimes a really good strategy is to like pull your hood out over your head, cover your ammo, and just you have a little shot timer and you just watch that timer tick down and you and you try to calm yourself while everyone else is losing their mind and freaking out cuz they're cold and wet and trying to get their shots downrange before the storm comes and then that squall passes and what follows a storm really nice bluebird calm conditions right with low wind velocities and you can really clean up then 
but choosing your time when you want to start your record string. I've, I've done, sometimes it's a gamble. Sometimes it pays off. Sometimes you really kind of get screwed because, you know, you could wait and let that time tick down. You haven't started your record string. You've got 20 to, to put down range and now you've only got five minutes left and the wind has picked up in that time. Ooh. So now you're shooting in a worse condition than everyone else got to shoot in. And you better hope your pit service is good. Otherwise, you might not get all your shots in before the time expires. Oh, right. So talk about pit service. That's uh, actually humans down 1,000 yards away from you in a bunker that are lowering, scoring, marking, and raising a target. So you get to see where your shot went each time. Uh, obviously, we can't see bullet holes at 1,000 yards, but... You know, you take turns, basically, when it's not your relay to shoot. You're getting on a people hauler going down, 1,000 yards downrange, and hiding in an earthen berm and pulling and marking targets uh, for your fellow competitors. So, And how, wow. do they mark, how do they mark the target, then? Yeah, so the target is roughly 5-foot by 5-foot um, frame with a paper target on it. And it can be on, like, a seesaw gantry-type target holder or maybe, like... A, a pipe with chains and plane bearings. But anyway, you pull it down, there'll be a new hole on there. You'll take a scoring disc, and the scoring disc is just like a plastic disc with like a golf tee through it. And you'll put it into the hole that the bullet made. And then you'll take, uh, uh, sorry, that's a spotting disc. The scoring disc is like a red or orange disc that will go into a position on the perimeter of the target frame. And the position that it's in corresponds to uh, a value for the shot. So it'll be like X ring, 10 ring, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Or if it's a miss, you'll see two scoring discs in the lower corner. You run it back up so that the shooter and the person scoring him or her can see the value of the shot and confirm, you know, you scored it correctly or not. They can challenge the score if they think it's touching a line and, and you screwed up. But that's how they see uh, where the shot went. And so they're also then factored into your time limit right because you can't just be like i got a minute left i gotta send 20 because then you got people also trying to do that's right and whatnot yeah and to be honest there's some variability in in uh pit service so Mm. you know you're supposed to do your best for your fellow competitors but you know every once in a while you've got um someone who's who's really kind of trying to hunt for those shots and taking too long or so the sport is moving towards electronic targets Hmm. So our home club, Lodi, here, 30 minutes away, they installed a bunch of electronic targets. And, you know, it's the kind of targets that Olympic committees have been using for a long time. Hmm. And uh, some of them are acoustic, and they triangulate the position of the shot based on the supersonic crack as it goes by. Some of them have vibrational sensors. um, But uh, in any case, they will mark uh, autonomously mark um, the location that your bullet passed through the target and they'll communicate that back to a tablet or um, a monitor back at the line of fire. And um, and is that monitor essentially at where you're shooting? Like you can look down and be like, yep, I can see where that impact was. Yep, exactly. Okay. Hmm. The only thing is uh, they've put rules in place, most ranges have, and the, and the ones that haven't should, uh, in my opinion, to create a delay between when you shoot and when you get that information. Because if you get at that information instantaneously – well, now you're changing the the essence of the sport. Instead of, you know, having to shoot relatively slowly, give the wind time to change, now you have to make an honest read on what the wind is doing now, make a new call, new shot. You can get into a habit that's called uh, chasing the spotter, and that's where 
you know, you forgo all hope of reading the wind and you just say, you know what, I'm just going to look to see where my spotter landed on the target and I'm going to make a full value correction based on that piece of information for my next shot. Mm-hmm. So okay. does that make sense? Yeah. So you're target, just you're just basing everything that you're doing off of your last shot exactly. rather than actually trying to assess all the situations. Exactly. And you know, in real world scenarios, you can't do that well because there's enough time delay between shots that the wind will pick up or will die or will reverse. And if you're chasing the spotter and and you're blindly you know ignoring that information, you're going to blow a seven out to the left because you didn't catch the reversal. And so people who, it's a it's a tempting thing to try in the in the beginning of your shooting career, but you quickly realize that you get burned pretty pretty quick if you do that. So mm-hmm. you're forced to learn to read the wind. Yeah. So now is the whole point of this then to be like when you get scored, like you said, there's X ring, there's mm-hmm. ten nine whatever. Yeah, the ten you're ring just... is a one MOA target. It's a ten inch. That's right. Ten inch ring at a thousand yards is your is your ten. Okay. Your X ring is a five inch. It's a half MOA. Okay. And you're just trying to be. The most accurate over the course of however many shots you get right. on the record, right? You know, just that to add, I, I watched Ian shoot a lot over the last two years, and when you know, he talks about ciders and and there's it's huge how pe- different people, if you walk the line, look at those ciders, they won't believe it. They'll shoot and they'll and, and they'll just go, "Well, that can't be right," you know. And and I just sit there and, and I'm listening to the, the different things, the people who use the ciders in the right way. You know, if it's unlimited or if it's your two shots, you know, you can tell right away in the next five shots that, you know, they, they didn't believe it. And then they go off and do something and their score just, and they just, yeah. you know. It, Trust it, your it, ciders. Yeah, it, it, it's how people mentally use it. And, um, you know, you really got to know when you when you crack off that shot. Did you do everything consistently? Yeah. Was it you or was it the wind sort of thing? Trust the information, like you say, Jimmy. Yeah. I use my two to do something called bracketing. And okay. so I will, I'll be observing the wind for the relay before when I, it's my turn to shoot. And I'll say, you know what? Okay, the predominant wind is four minutes from the left. And it dies out to about two minutes from the left. So when it's my turn to shoot, I'm going to pick when I shoot my two sighters so that I get no kidding information about how that affects my bullet. I have a rough idea of how it will, you know. But I'm going to wait to shoot one sighter in the strongest wind I think it'll, it'll get. And then I'm going to shoot another in um, the, the lowest wind or maybe a reversal. So I know, hey, if this happens during the next 15 minutes, oh. I'm going to remember that that reversal was good for, you know, a three-ring left hold or three-ring right hold or something like that. Yeah, Like yeah, you said, okay. the brackets, you almost kind of get both extremes there. Exactly, exactly. And now you've you- got a window that you know, okay, this is this is where I'm going to be playing for the next. So now minutes. you know why I watch shooters like him go yeah. out there before you ever get to line because you, you you pick up these things and just listening to these shooters and well that can't be right or and it's like they're not really taking using the the cider to the full effect in my opinion you know as as a beginner going wow you know which oh, is yeah, all absolutely. that information huge, you, yeah. you can just pull all kinds of information on it and then reading the mirage is another thing too just besides the wind. Well that's that's something I wanted to get into here because you talk a lot about wind in this case and wind being a huge factor in your accuracy. Now I do want to go backtrack and talk about these rifles and ammunition more like I said, but wind is a huge thing. When we were doing our long range 1001 and 1002 series 
we kind of got into 1002 it and honestly at long range is something you could talk about it could be you know you could go all the way up to 2000 and probably still not have everything down but wind was one of those things where in a perfect world in a, in in this vacuum bubble if we lived in one of those all you'd have to do is run a ballistics calc and then you'd hit everything you'd never yeah. miss yeah but wind is this huge equalizer for so many different shooters and so what you're describing is let's say you have this wait time for example between different shots the wind might change this is one thing that's crazy too i'd love you guys to go into the fact that i think a lot of people think that if you walk out in the morning and you hold up a blade of grass and you let it drop and it's flowing that way you're like well the wind's going that way today wind can change in a matter of minutes if not if not seconds and so i'd love for you guys to talk about that and then also i've heard you guys in the past talk about how you're shooting at, say, 1,000 yards, the wind might be different at 100, 200, 300, 700, 800, 1,000. And so how are you guys doing that? Does that make you also like a better first-round shooter even in other situations like hunting? And always ask, always ask what affects the bullet more. Is it at the muzzle or at the target? Yeah, and, what, and what you would can you talk guys, for you could talk for hours on just this. just as a thought experiment. What would you guys say? Like, is it more influential? You know, close by, mid midway, halfway, or I feel like I've it? got inside information. I feel like I, I've got inside info. Yeah. I I definitely thought many uh, moons ago that it would have far more of an impact downrange because I thought, well, you know, at that point, maybe the bullet has gone subsonic. Maybe it's, it, you know, it's not moving as quickly. It's dropping a lot more dramatically. Yeah. It's just more prone to, maybe it's wobbling more, whatever, more prone to be carried by that wind. But am I wrong in Mark? that? Well, like I said, I feel like I've got some inside information there, but I do have Cheating some questions regarding, I guess, should I just say what my inside information is? Yeah, yeah. Tell us, set us straight. At the muzzle. Yeah. yeah. And, Which uh, is, so some some people's minds are melted by that. So it's a little counterintuitive. <laughs> I, I would agree with you. I you know before I knew better, I would I would have said the exact same thing. Um, how would you explain the why? I think it's because it's a, a little bit at the muzzle is huge, a thousand yards away. Because we're dealing in a game of angles. Exactly. Exactly. So tiny, so tiny little angle. Tiny up little front. angle here is nothing. Or a hundred yards, it's nothing. Yeah. Maybe even at five hundred yards, it's a little bit. Once it goes to a thousand, it's the big yeah. difference. Because we're doing, you're making, you're making triangles. It's triangle. Right, and that triangle as it travels gets wider and wider and wider. And yep. then you get down to a thousand yards, it's huge. Even yep. if that influence was very local, like it, it's not a consistent crosswind, like we were talking about the whole distance to the target. It was just in that first third, let's say, and then it's dead calm for the for the two thirds that follows it would have done its damage, right? It would have had its influence already, and that yeah. influence propagates on that same angle. And yeah. that influence, I mean, the way I feel like I understood it explained to me is, I mean, it's essentially that wind at the muzzle essentially points the bullet, sending it on, you know, that vector that extrapolates over distance. Is that right? I mean, or is that bullet... Because I would think that, like, if it was just, like, pointing straight and it was just, like, this horizontal influence then it wouldn't be a big deal if it was at the muzzle or down like range could, or whatever. Like it could overcome that um, and get back on track maybe? or No, not get back on track, but just like it would be more of a constant influence. Like, I guess like as I'm soon as maybe the, once it got out of that point of wind, would it carry on straight again? Yeah. Rather than rather than Yeah, save for things like, like spin drift angle. and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. That's a very true. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a persistent um, change for that from that 
uh, influence to the time that it hits the target or whatever, it's going to be on a new course. Right. Um, yeah. When people say a cartridge, for example, is less affected by wind than another cartridge, now is that kind of a is that kind of a misnomer where maybe it is quote less affected by wind because you might see less side to side motion when when the wind picks up? Like is that just is that just the result of a faster bullet because it just gets to the target quicker, so it had less time to be in the air and be affected by wind, or or are there actually ways that like that a bullet can become more aerodynamic or more wind dynamic or something. Yeah. So if you were to answer the question, like what is ballistic coefficient? You guys have had some cool podcasts recently about BC and is, is, is a bigger number always better and that sort of thing. But I guess to jump to the point, a uh, ballistic coefficient is a way to describe a bullet's ability to be less affected by the influence of wind. So, uh, if if a cartridge, you know, you got the bullet and you got the cartridge. If someone says this cartridge is less affected by wind, it's less affected by virtue of not only the bullet uh, in its shape and its BC, but also the external ballistics that it starts out with, right? So it's muzzle velocity, and so it'd be an oversimplification to say it's always BC or it's always muzzle velocity or it's always inertia, which is actually wrapped up into BC. But it's a it's a function of all those things, and that's kind of like why you know it's very rare to have a 308 in an FTR gun, even though they compete in separate classes, beat out an F open gun that's shooting a 300 Winchester short mag. Your one of your favorite cartridges, yeah. That's <laughs> it's actually like right now kind of the the prince of the f open world is the 300 wisdom i know really i shouldn't have said that but i should get no, dude, he's I'm gonna never take... gonna shut up about it <laughs> take the old <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna see me on the course here very shortly yeah oh, well man. the thing is like that's see that that's one of the great things about f open is a guy who's enamored with his new um ruger american in 65 creedmoor it qualifies you really, know, you can go and win a match with it. So it, d- it doesn't qualify for this one that you're the FTR because you have to be a 308 or two two three or two two. Yeah. So okay. this was kind of born out of like, okay, what are the standard NATO cartridges? Yeah. Um, we'll have that be the restriction, and then uh, open is like I said, thirty five caliber and less. Why on God's green earth would you run a want want to run a two two three out to a thousand yards versus <laughs> a three oh eight? But for the mid the mid, you know, the the three, four and five, you know, the Super shorter range. Competitive it's for very good. Do you it's have really your choice? Is yeah. it, does I mean would a person advantage? maybe be yeah. shooting a three oh eight against a person who's shooting a two two three? Yeah, they yeah. compete against At each other. Same time. Yep. Yeah. It's okay. your choice which one you want to use. And uh, people actually do use the two two three. I've seen them I've seen them beat three oh eights multiple times at those mid range distances. It has something to do with, you know, perceived recoil being that much less. Um mm. people just shoot them really accurately. Oftentimes if you're trying to get a, a really young shooter into the sport, it's a great gateway drug sure. for them. <laughs> You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, all about gateway drugs here. Yeah, yeah. And they make some long MC Ryan edit high edit. BC two two three. You'll see some high BC round two two three rounds. You know, ninety grain and above now. How many? Yeah. How many grains is are the three hundred eight rounds that you guys are sending down? So how, how heavy are they? You said they're heavier than normal. Yeah, so they're two hundred grains right now is kind of the oh, the yeah. sweet spot. Yeah. Huh. You said two hundred. Two hundred. Yeah. What Bro. kind? What kind of a bullet is it? Is it like? Uh, I mean, I imagine there's probably more than one kind. But yeah. is it like? Are you using kinds of the polymer tips on them? Or are you using? 
I don't, I don't know enough. Yeah, it's not, it's not state-of-the-art in terms of construction. It's like a, your typical uh, lead core, copper jacket, open-tip match bullet. Like okay. you've seen okay. Sierra Match Kings forever and burger hybrids and, and things like that. Those are the bullets that are consistently winning and at the top. I think a lot of those are like, you know, put, I guess, to make that comparison, those are what, like 178s or something like that? Yeah. 178 grain? That's, so versus like 200, which yeah. is, you guys are pushing. Yeah. So now all the major manufacturers offer 200 plus grain, 30 caliber bullets, um, cool. some of them specifically for F class. But it's not your dad's 308. That's the other thing. Like, you're limited by that cartridge, right? And referees come and they have go no go gauges that they'll slip a fired case into. And if your fired case doesn't go into that, go gauge you're disqualified and you're you're off the range or uh, similarly you know if uh, they can prove through like a chamber gauge that you've extended your headspace to get a little extra internal volume you get dq'd as well so are they spot checking that or is like everybody's going through the yeah you could shoot a local match and you'll never get checked uh it's pretty rare actually at local matches but like you know international matches especially uh, yeah. national championships they'll check as do they check the weight so you're limited to this 308 cartridge in external dimensions. What can you do to increase its performance? Well, one thing that people have done is they've gone to uh, small primer brass. So for anyone that shoots a, a 6.5 Creedmoor, you know they came out with, Lapua came out with some small primer brass for that, and there's some inherent benefits. The web of the case gets stronger, so it can resist a little bit higher pressures. Hmm. So you can drive the cartridge to a little bit higher pressures. Because it has a smaller hole in it for the primer? More to the point, it has more brass around inherently... Um, more material. ...weak part of the case, yeah. Okay. So just more material. Um, it's it's thicker and it's stronger. Okay. Um, the primer pocket itself, uh, because uh, it's got surrounded by so much more brass, it's less prone to um, loosening up uh, for successive reloads. And we throat our chambers out pretty long. So that's the part of the chamber that it's like the no-man land between the end of the mouth of the case and the beginning of the rifling. Why that where we, were ta- we were previously talking about jump and... Yeah. I don't remember what the other opposite of jump was. Jump and jam. Jam, there jam. you go. So you guys yep. are jumping? Yeah, so for team shooting, so this is an individual and a team sport, but for team shooting, it's really important to jump the bullet, not to jam the bullet, because every once in a while there'll be a ceasefire called by a line official, and you'll have to open your action and show safe. Well, if you jam, like you know Paul and Scott and those guys were um, discussing in the previous podcast, you could leave a bullet stuck in your rifling, powder oh, yeah. all over your action, powder yeah. in your fire control unit, and you're kind of out of commission then. So for team shooting, it's really important to, to uh, jump. I think some people still jam for individual competitions. Um, I, I think that's a liability as well. I always jump, just to, I don't have to worry about it. Otherwise, pe- people have all these workarounds where they're carrying around compressed air with them or a cleaning rod to, you know, get the bullet unstuck and things like that. But, yeah, so we, we throat our chambers out long, and the reason why we do that is then we can seat the bullet a little bit further out, and it gives us a little bit more powder capacity. I know it sounds trivial, but a little bit extra can, you know, push you to that higher accuracy node, higher velocity accuracy node, so... For example, this rifle here, it's tuned right now to shoot a 200-grain bullet out of a 308 at close to 2,700 feet per second. Wow. Oh, wow, yeah. Okay. Which, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to go out and buy ammo that performs like that. 
Yeah. How do you tune the rifle? How does that, how does that happen? What do you? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, I'll tell you how I do it and you probably, you might have a little bit different method, but, uh, especially when you talk about jumping and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you jump? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it depends on the bullet too. Some bullet. Big jumper. Big (laughs) jumper over here. Some bullets don't like to be jumped. The, the bullet that I was introduced to by, by Ian, the 200-grain bullet that we're shooting, likes to be jumped. And depending on the wear of your throat, too, the more you shoot your gun, the throat gets eroded away. His is brand new compared to this one, but it's, this is still hyper-accurate. But I have, to, I have to jump the bullet. So I go through reloading and all that stuff, and I'll shoot a uh, different bullet or take the bullet and uh, seat it at different depths and then shoot it and see which ones perform the best. So mm-hmm. when I go out there, I know my load to get that accurate. I'm shooting at 2682, I think, is my average okay. velocity out of this gun, give or take five or six <laughs> feet per second. Um, but Oh, man. Yeah. Got a, got a little work to do he, there he, still. I <laughs> know. He, he's like, just go shoot. Just go shoot. <laughs> <laughs> he, he loads better ammo than I do. Uh, for me, it's lost in the noise at this point. I'm not a good enough shooter to realize the benefit. I think two-time national champion, not well, a good enough shooter. <laughs> I just I rack and stack the variables a little bit differently. Right, I think, right, yeah, yeah. So I go out there and when you reload it and find that uh, nodes, like he was talking about, we shoot with Doppler radar. Okay. So we don't have a normal chronograph. We'll have a Doppler radar set up next to us, a little personal Doppler radar. So you mean we like can... one of those old uh, white spaceships that you <laughs> you like steal it from the tower in the middle of, of the city. Yeah. The. It, yeah, we can pick up the weather fronts coming in too. And <laughs> <laughs> no, it looks like a a, a PC really. Yeah. It'll sit on its end and it'll shoot down, and we can get uh, Doppler reflection out to a little over 100 yards with our 30 caliber gun. So we we collect a lot of velocity data, and we reload to try and get nodes where that bullet really likes to be at for speed. And then once we I find that node, then I'll start working with seating depth to figure out where I want to jump my bullet, where it pulls the group in. So that, that's how I go through it. And, I, and it can take a while, but the thing is I, I'll get everything, the velocity stuff, and, and get everything set up at 100 yards, and then I go to 1,000 yards and never go back to 100 because it really doesn't matter. I can make really small holes at 100 yards, but it doesn't matter because at 1,000 it's totally different. Yeah. You know, okay. So I want to see how that bullet is. You know, the water line we talk about is the line that goes right through the center of the X. So I want to make sure my velocities stay close enough so I'm at 1,000 yards, my line is like this, and then I have to worry about the wind. So if I can have a, a, a tuned cartridge that my water line is, is where I want it, it's nice and flat within, you know, a couple inches, then all I have to do is re- now it's me against the wind, really. Okay. So you know, why is so vertical dispersion so important for for a scoring game like this, it keeps you in the ring. It yeah, keeps, it keeps, you, in the, keeps you in the fat, fat part of the ring. Right, right. right. Yeah. So the fat part of the ring, what he's talking about, you know, the circle. So it's around here instead of up and down. You don't want to be off to the left here, and all of a sudden, the ring's like this, and you're out here because you're oh, because it's a circle. I it's a it. circle. Okay, yeah, it's I get not, what you're you know. So yeah. you want to be in that fat part. Give yourself the most leeway. Up, yeah. So you want to get. A cartridge that is very yeah. consistent. In the dead center of a circle, if you go all the way to the left and all the way to the right, right. let's say that's 10. Now go to the bottom third or the top third of the circle. You could go all the way to the left, all the way to the right, and it might be yeah. 7. 
Or, uh, as far as like inches or whatever, yeah. whatever right. unit of right. measure you're using, yeah. you just right. have less less elbow room vertically. That's right. Yeah, once you go up. And, and there's nothing more aggravating sense. than like in a really hard day and you make some superstar wind call and it's a perfect 12 o'clock, 9 or <laughs> 6 o'clock, 9. And you're like, man, if my gun was just shooting a little bit flatter or with a little bit less dispersion, that would have been a 10 or an X. Right. Interesting. So yeah. I, you try to... I try to take all everything out of it so that it's me making a wind call and a good trigger pull. Mm. And, uh, and and he's helped me out tremendously, you know, showing me all the different things and the setup and the consistency of it. But so you're yeah, saying to get a good score, you really got to, you know, start with a good cartridge, a good reload, get, okay. that, get it tuned yeah. you know, for my gun. And this was his, started out as his, and it's changed a little bit from when he had it. Yeah. But we're still pretty close in the same ballpark. Yeah. Um, so most of your tuning is coming from the ammunition then, right? Or are Except there things a, that you're doing to the rifle then? Now that, he's doing some stuff yeah, here. Yeah, what is this? You got like a, <laughs> I don't a even weird know how to explain this. It looks like a plasma cannon on the I'm end of your... I'm pretty sure I can hook my garden hose to it. <laughs> yeah, it's this a quick is, detach. Yeah, this is your quick... Uh, I don't want to actually touch it. I, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't change anything in, don't worry. All right, so this is going to be a little bit more nerdy, and I promise to give like the, the top level of it, but tuning a rifle... You guys have heard of things like barrel di- uh, harmonics, yeah. you know, and vibration and things. So when a ballistic event happens and this bullet is going through uh, this barrel, it's a lot more dynamic than people realize. If they see high-speed footage, it would look like it's a wet noodle almost, you know. And the analogy I like to use is like high-pressure water going through a garden hose as soon as you turn the tap on for the first time. What happens to that garden hose? You know, it goes through these big displacements and and everything as the water is traveling through it. Same thing happens to the barrel. It moves in a couple different waveforms, but let's just say the most prominent waveform is a sinusoidal wave that's moving longitudinally like this, okay? So under that assumption, and remember I told you that whether it's a couple hundred milliseconds or I forget the exact time split, but it takes time for that bullet to travel down that barrel as it's moving. So suffice to say that when it exits the muzzle, um, that muzzle has an attitude or it's pointing in a certain direction. You're like, well, pointing towards the target. Of course, it's pointed somewhere. Mm -hmm. But it's actually got a very local attitude at the very end of the muzzle, okay? Mm -hmm. And what you're doing when you're finding a node or when you're tuning a rifle is you're finding an advantageous attitude of that muzzle to have all your bullets exit, Okay, and I'm going to take that one step further. So there's this consensus that's forming. Um, Some people knew about it decades ago, but within the precision rifle sports, it's just starting to gain a foothold and people are realizing it's a true phenomenon called positive compensation. So positive compensation means that no matter how anal you get with your reloading, you'll always have a gradient of velocities. You'll always have one round that's going faster than another, and every other round is going somewhere in between. Plus or minus five or six. What was that? Five, five or six feet, feet per second? Feet yeah. Per second. <laughs> For me, it's more than that. It's probably <laughs> twice that. But what you're doing is you're tuning this barrel so that that delta in velocity actually works in your favor. And how could that be? I mean, shooting sports are all about being consistent, right? Well, if you have some variability in your muzzle velocities and you time it so that the barrel at the very end of the muzzle is actually rising, it's on, a, it's on an upsweep, so it'll, it'll go up and then it'll pause at some uh, amplitude and then it'll go down and it'll pause at some you know, minimum, local minimum, 
If you time it so that all of your bullets are exiting somewhere in that upsweep of the barrel, what happens is the bullet that's a little bit faster than its littermates is exiting <laughs> a little bit sooner, <laughs> right? So the attitude of the barrel is a little bit lower. Now it's going faster. It starts out with an advantage. The, the runt of the litter, the slow guy, is exiting later in time. So that barrel is up like this when it exits, okay? So inherently, it's slower. It's going to take longer to get to the target. But you've just given it a little bit of a head start because now it's got an angle of inclination compared well, to its fast. A little oomph. Yes. If you're going to try and get something a long way, but you can't throw it very hard, you aim up. There you go. You know? That's whereas, perfect. Yep. Whereas if you've got something that you can just totally manhandle and just throw it super quick, side you can arm, side like arm it. Fire, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you can be a gunslinger. So that velocity node is when, it's, when you get that consistency at that velocity. Well, the velocity is just like an indirect way of measuring one... One way to tune a rifle. Right, right. So what I do, right, is I use velocity to find out, and I use bullet impact at distance that I'm going to be competing at, 800 yards, 900 yards, whatever. I look for a spot where I get convergence downrange. So think about those two extremes, right, the slow one and the fast one. They're going to converge. They're going to, I'm sorry, they're going to diverge mm -hmm. um, for a while, right? They'll be going on separate paths, and they'll get pretty far away from each other, relatively speaking, halfway to the target. But then they're going to actually converge because mm -hmm. the faster one is going to you know, keep its linear velocity a little bit more efficiently than the slower one. The slower one had a head start, so it's above the faster one. But guess what? It's going to lose its velocity a little bit more uh, quickly. Huh. So they'll end up actually hitting the target at roughly the same uh, point of impact on the target. How can you tell if your bullet is leaving the barrel when it's on its way up or when it's on its way down? Like, are there things happening downrange on the target that you're seeing? Are you using, like, the world's awesomest slow-mo camera? Yeah. Are you, like, <laughs> what? Yeah, <laughs> so that's, no, it's an obvious question, yeah. And the answer is you're looking at a relative point of impact at the target. You can tell by the behavior of where those holes appear based on their velocity. You know the velocity of each shot, right? We've got the Doppler radar set up. Uh, we know that, hey, shot number four was the slowest. And you know exactly where shot number four hit on the target. And it happens to be in line or on that same waterline as shot number 10, which was the fastest. That phenomenon only happens when you have positive compensation. So you know, hey, I'm on the upsweep of the barrel. I know I'm getting PC or positive compensation. Hmm. This is a good place to be. If you're away from that, if you're um, you know, one, one cycle of that sinusoidal waveform away from that, then you get the opposite effect. The fast bullet is leaving at a higher incident angle than the slow bullet. So it's high. It yep. winds up hitting the target high. Way high compared and your, to. Your, your slower one winds up hitting way low. Way low. Because it had a disadvantage right out of the gate. Yep, yep. And so now your vertical dispersion might be three times that. This is amazing. Now, how can you change this? Are you changing with this weight on the end of the barrel? Is that somehow, are you influencing how much the barrel whips and at what time it's whipped? Exactly. Whipping by, by the weight that's on the end of it? Yeah, so you heard us say that you can tune a rifle, and more specifically like a barrel, by charge weight of your powder or, or a velocity. So you can do that, but another way to do it, and we, in the centerfire guys, these long-range guys, we sort of borrowed it from the rimfire crowd because they can't really 
load their ammo, right? They're, they're, they're stuck with what they have. So they started using these things called barrel tuners, and that's what this thing is. And it's a way of influencing the center of gravity of this barrel, and as a result, the moment of inertia of the barrel. So what happens is as you, as you move this ring on the outside, you're actually taking this mass right here and you're putting it further away from the muzzle of the barrel. So in a sense, you're, you're increasing oh, yeah. the length of your barrel. So remember back to like high school physics class um, when you're talking about um, structural um, members or, or whatnot, the, for a given um, mass, the, you know, the shorter and heavier profile uh, of that member, it's going to be stiffer, right? And when it vibrates in that waveform, that sinusoidal waveform, do you think the frequency of that vibration would go up or down for a stiff barrel, like a short, fat barrel? The frequency would be high. High. The amplitude would be low. So it would... It's not making big sweeping movements. It's just no, making short little... Exactly, because it's stiff, right? Okay, yeah. You take that exact same amount of steel and you reduce the barrel contour, let's say, and you make it a little bit longer and you shoot the exact same round through it, it's going to have a lower frequency, but it's going to have higher amplitude. So higher amplitude is actually, it's a little bit counterintuitive because for years we were told that short, stiff barrels are more accurate. The bull barrels. The bull barrels, exactly. And uh, Which, I mean, you guys do, I mean, these barrels aren't by any means. Like, they're not featherweights. Yeah, featherweights yeah. or uh, what are they, senderos or whatever. Right, right, right. Not that, but. Right. But a little bit of barrel movement is actually advantageous if you're trying to achieve positive compensation. So by moving this tuner, adjusting this tuner, you're changing in a very small way. You're changing the CG of that barrel, and you're changing how it moves, how it's whipping, by the time the bullet gets to the end of the muzzle. They call that barrel time. So you're, you're optimizing okay. the barrel okay. time for the attitude. So you're getting a more consistent. That, I mean, we're all going towards a more consistent... Well, position of the barrel then well you're you're looking for a specific uh, point in time that you want all your projectiles to leave the barrel so what happens is the guys who really know what they're doing I'm not there yet I just started experimenting with that as a way to tune when I travel to matches hmm. but the guys who really know what they're doing apparently they say that you know you tune this this barrel at 70 degrees Fahrenheit you go across the country and you shoot a match at 50 degrees Fahrenheit your ammo is going to be a little bit slower because of the okay. ambient temperature. Yeah. And you can actually compensate for that with this barrel tuner. So the theory is it's going to take longer for that bullet to get to the muzzle and to get it to exit at the spot that you want it to. You actually have to slow the whip of the barrel down, and you do that by moving this counterweight outboard. Hmm. Opposite would hold true, too. You go to a really hot part of the country or time of year, you want to move that weight inboard, so that you increase the frequency of, of yeah. vibration here. I mean, you're essentially putting less or more air underneath that football, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mark, that's why you can't get rid of that donut on your 300 wins. I want it off. Everybody says you look done with it, but you're more accurate with it. I know. Is that like one of those de-resonator? It's mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things. It doesn't that go rubber, on the end that of the barrel, rubber but thing? It's like, yeah, it's a donut. Oh, that's something different. That's I mean, it does contribute to CG and stuff, but... I think it's dampening a lot of the noise in your barrel. So I think, you know, we talked about that, that big waveform that the barrel moves in. Uh, there's other ones. There's like 
little compression waves that move through your barrel mm. and mm. Okay. and longitudinal ones. And I think that's absorbing a lot of that movement and making it pure, a more pure um, waveform. So interesting. They do look kind of ugly, don't they? It's kind of. It's more. It's just. It's just like a totally like a cosmetic pride thing, and then yeah, yeah. My dad called it one thing one time, and I actually I did try to get it off <laughs> the other day. <laughs> it stuck. It on stuck there. on there pretty good. I was like, it's a sign. Gave... Now, Niles, you're not you're not using one of these no. bad boys here, no. but you're you're more into the loading up the super crazy good ammo. Trust me, if he makes it work. It gets it done probably on my next one or whatever. <laughs> you know, you never know because we're all like these frustrated golfers and got to tweak things. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't just let well enough alone until he hits me and says, quit playing with the reloads and just go shoot now. You, you're fine. Yeah. You know, you know we make fun of it, but there's <laughs> actually like this real placebo effect to doing a lot of these things. Yeah. You know, it's like... Uh, having your lucky charm, you know, when you go to, to, you know, do something important or whatever. And if he believes in his heart of heart that it will make a difference on paper, on target, then absolutely he should keep keep doing it to the degree he's doing it because yeah. it's so mental. Right. We were talking about that before we started about how people will trim their bullets and then point their bullets. And, and scientifically that's, you know, counterintuitive. You shouldn't really trim them. You, you can point them and get a better BC, but once you trim them, you shorten them, they change the BC, and pointing them is not going to make it any better than it was when you first started sort of thing. And hmm. there's scientific stuff out there that some people have written about that shows that, but, you know, people still do it. That is mind-boggling. Now, let's keep let's keep moving on. Both of you guys have Velcro on your barrels, so Niles will have you explain this one maybe to start out. What's with the Velcro on your barrels? Okay, what do you, what do you uh, what was a major problem shooting indoors after you shoot one or two rounds down a barrel? Mirage. Bingo. So we Velcro a Mirage shield underneath this on, uh, when you're out there. Yeah. A lot of times you don't really need it, depending on the weather, but if you get into the right environment and your barrel's really got the you don't want to see the Mirage here as much as you want to see it uh, downrange. Yeah. So you put the Mirage shield on it so the heat will go out. To the outside of your scope from the barrel as you're shooting, Correct. as you've been as you've been lobbing some rounds down. Yep. So mirage is something where we could almost take another. We're, we're already a smidge over an hour here, but this has been so interesting. We're just going to keep going, darn Let's it. Keep her moving. Keep her moving. But mirage is something that you could have an entire podcast on. I'm sure we've we've even talked about it a lot in the Long Range 1002. So you have mirage at the barrel. First off, what is Mirage again? It's like it's like light being weird. We we in Long Range One Thousand Two, yeah. we were like we said that the the PRS the PRS guys in the room admitted that there was such a thing as Mirage. <laughs> they said that the F class guys are the ones that actually know what to do with it. You know, they're the ones that actually can can see air and watch it work over and, a hot parking lot. It's a perfect place to do it on a sunny yeah. day, and you can, it just looks like waves. The air's got mm-hmm. waves in it. Yeah. So, so you know how like with different lenses within the scopes we make, uh, there's in, indices of refraction. Okay. The same thing can be said for any medium that light is traveling through, and, and atmosphere, air is one of those medium. And if it's at a different temperature gradient, its index changes just a little bit. So you're seeing a local temperature gradient somewhere downrange. Usually it's like classic uh, inferior mirages uh, where you have uh, hot radiant heat coming off the ground and the surrounding air is relatively cool compared. And you have like these warm air thermals that are moving up. Um, Okay. Okay. 
that might be superior mirage, but inferior, yeah, that's right. Inferior is the opposite where you, you might be out at sea and the water temperature is colder than the air temperature and you actually have uh, the exact opposite. Where you can, you'll, don't people almost see where in the sky it looks like yeah. a reflection of the ocean is in the sky? That's exactly right. Or then when you see the kind that's the, the superior. First superior, it's where it looks like the sky is on the ground. Yep, and that's the classic, like when you're in the desert and you think you see a lake. Right. It's actually the, the sky. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's light being bent or refracted on its way to your optic or your eye. And you have to learn to not only deal with it, but make it your friend and like yeah. use it. It can actually cause you to miss because it can it can make you think a target is somewhere that it's not, right? That's really common. Yeah, actually, so two things that exacerbate mirage are temperature gradients and then moisture in the air because you get a little bit of water vapor. Now, that's a different medium as well, which has a different indice of refraction, index of refraction. So the worst possible scenario is one of those winter days where you've got snow on the ground and the sun is in full effect and it's evaporating a lot of that moisture into the air because now you've got a big temperature gradient and you've got a lot of moisture that's coming with that, those thermal. It just um, sucks to be outside on those days anyway. Yeah. Because <laughs> you look you look down and there's cold air on your lower half and you look up and you're like sweating up top yep. because the sun is, anyway. So, um, it's just a personal gripe. It has nothing to do with, sh- it has nothing to do with shooting. <laughs> on a day like that, your target, let's say you're shooting at 1,000, your target will look a full minute different than reality. And in that scenario, it'll look like your bullseye is higher than it actually is. And so you have to learn to recognize that. And what I do is there will be a moment in time where, like, the wind just stops. And it's usually only, like, a second or a fraction of a second. Or a moment in time when the wind sort of reverses. And when that happens, you'll be looking through your scope at the target. And the bullseye will look like it just snapped down for a second. And, Hmm. yeah, it usually doesn't last very long. But... You take a picture with your with your mind's eye and you say, wow, that was seven-eighths of a minute or maybe a full minute on one of those bad days. And then from that point on, you trust that. And it's like using the force. And it's like, okay, I'm going to hold a full minute low knowing that that's where my target is wow. if I don't want to compensate with you know the turrets or something like wow. that. Wow. Yeah. I feel like when you, when you said that, it looks like the target jumps down. There's one of those, you know, when you watch movies and there's the pre-roll things that say, like, who was involved in making the movie. You'll see the Pixar light bulb or whatever jumping around, and, you know, there's, like, a a bad robot or whatever. One of those people has their pre-roll 10 seconds of something downrange that has Mirage in front of it, and it looks like it's moving. Anyway, Oh, really? Yeah. So now now I'm going to notice that every time I watch that movie that I can't think of. I mean, (laughs) not that I watch cartoon movies. I just... The kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But so you've got Mirage down down range. You can read it too, because the wind can push it. Yeah. Right? That's that's one weird thing that people say all the time. They say you, you mentioned Niles, you said right. reading Mirage. Right. Just like which reading is, the wind, except you can actually see you can see the wind so you can happening down range. How does one read Mirage at three hundred? And then, because you guys can do this, this is this is something super cool that I learned about F class shooters that that really start to understand how this works. You can read Mirage at three hundred, and you can read Mirage at seven hundred or eight hundred or whatever yeah. that are doing different things because the wind is acting differently at those different distances. Yeah, how does that happen? You have to like, how do you, how are you seeing? Yeah, a how do you separate that? See, it how, seems like it'd just be layered on top of one another. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's actually changing your focal distance 
dynamically as you're laying down there shooting. So one of the ways you can do that is two most popular products, uh, Vortex products in F-Class are our Golden Eagle rifle scope as well as our Razor spotter scope, spotting scope. That 85mm angled eyepiece uh, Gen 2 spotter is like now the most popular spotting scope in all of uh, F-Class. Hmm. And what people will do is they'll they'll take a census of the wind uh, on the infield and they'll start at the target and they might move that focus wheel and back off to 800 yards and say, you're, okay. You're purposely then starting to make the target out of focus. Exactly. But other things come into focus. Okay. And what you want to find are areas of uh, color contrast, like uh, our number boards, uh, which are above or below our targets, are black and white. So that's a classic feature, like the edge of a number board or maybe where it goes from black to white on um, a letter on the number board. Mirage really stands out well. It's easy to read it. It's easy to see it on areas of contrast. So there will be like service roads, gravel roads that go across the range, sometimes at 500, 600, 800 yards. And you go to the edge of one of those service roads and no, there'll be grass on either side of the gravel. It's a perfect horizontal line that you can use to read Mirage. But yeah, so they'll take that wheel and they'll be focusing closer and closer to themselves and they'll they'll get a, a read of that Mirage at maybe three or four different um, distances. And then oftentimes they'll say, okay, you know, I think the predominant Mirage that I'm going to dope off of is the 600-yard Mirage, and they'll go back to 600 yards. They'll leave that spotting scope there for the whole string that they shoot. Their scope will be focused at the target, and they'll constantly go back and look at that spotting scope as they're shooting. See if anything has changed. Exactly, yeah. They're getting their, their ground truth from that spotting scope, and they're executing the shot in the in the rifle scope. I do something a little bit different where I like to uh, I like to compromise and what I do is I use this aperture stop ring that comes with the Golden Eagle on the objective. So wait a minute, you've made your objective smaller. Which is supposed to be bad, right? Well, Mark? I mean, I'm not going to tell you not to do it. <laughs> big objective Mark Boardman <laughs> over here. Yeah. Anyway. So... Yeah, if I was like uh, concerned primarily with the twilight hours of hunting, I yeah I wouldn't mess with this. But for our sport, what's cool is you can decrease your objective and increase your depth of focus downrange. So why is that valuable? Well, I can make more timely decisions on changes with the wind while staying in the rifle scope, and I've got the target more or less in focus. You know, it's a, it's in serviceable focus. But I can see Mirage, let's say I'm shooting 1,000 yards, I can see that 600-yard uh, Mirage with this in place. Hmm. So it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty effective. You have Does that allow in focus. Right, it's like uh, for camera buffs, it's changing your f-stop. You're going from yeah. an f3 or f2.5, really big aperture, down to an f16 so that you have more in focus, you get more depth in okay. that mm-hmm. picture. Okay. So he can see that Mirage at 600 and it's target at 700 by using that ring. Hmm. Yeah. And that's included with, with the scope. Does that allow you, I guess, as opposed to like going back to the spotter to make calls like more real time? Like, I know exactly what's going on right now. This is, I want to execute that shot now. Exactly. So the information that you get is it's only growing stale. Like if you wait and you are okay, you know, right. taking a long time to make your decision, the better you can process the information and uh, make a good decision and then act on that decision, the better you'll score. 
so that's kind of what the theory is there. And the weird thing is with this aperture stop ring, you guys know like with uh, with the light that enters your scope, you've got you know chief rays that are entering the very center, and then you've got marginal rays that are kind of entering around the perimeter of your objective. A lot of the aberration that just comes as part and parcel of any optical prescription is born out of those marginal rays. Like right. that's kind of where the spherical aberration lives. And uh, you're kind of giving up not the premium part of the scope, right? Bingo, there. bingo. Oh, you're you're keeping you're keeping the, the good, good stuff. The good stuff. Yeah, I see. You can take it too far if you let's say you had an iris up here and you adjusted it so that it was only like you know a few millimeters. Well, now your exit people imagine that you're at 60 power and you've reduced your your front uh, objective clear pupil to like 10 millimeters. You'd have like a 0.6 millimeter. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's people. a balance to be struck. With there is, yeah. there is, and you start sacrificing the good light too if you go too close to the center. Interesting. So, and you need enough ambient light in the day to make use of this. Like if it's a really dark, cloudy day, I'll take this off because right. it's just cutting down too much. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, Ian, when you, when you shoot, you don't shoot at 60. Do you, you usually like back it off so you can, I, when I do it, I sort of back off so I can see like wind, a little more, a couple wind, wind flags yeah. as well as my target out of, just off the edge so I can make that, that wind call as well. Yeah, we're, we're running a little long here, but um, oh, yeah, no, I could we're talk, good. I keep could going. Talk forever. Yeah, keep going. Uh, so basically, if there's not a whole lot going on, if it's not a real challenging day, usually in the morning, I'll go ahead and shoot right at 60 for sure. Mm -hmm. If there's stuff changing up field, so a lot of these 1,000-yard ranges are really wide, and you can see wind changes that are affecting your competitors on the far end of the range. They haven't gotten to you yet, and you can actually see them coming across the range. Oh, seriously? Seriously, yeah. So how are you seeing that? Yeah, so you see you're it. also shooting, right? Yeah, you're you shooting. you have like seven eyes? Yeah, so what I do is I take, I take the scope and I'll say, you know what, I want to see the change before it gets to me. I'll dial it down to something like 30 power maybe. Which seems like a lot oh, still. that's all. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get into the scopes of F-Class. Yeah. That We're saving that for last. Just, yeah. you know, everybody's listening to Vortex Nation podcast. We want to make sure it doesn't seem too... Sure. Commercially, anyway. right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, a paltry 30 power. And that way, I've got this <laughs> giant field of view, and I can see... Ooh, that's huge. Oh, it's picking up over here, and it's going to get to me in about five seconds. So, I'm going to shoot one more time, and then I'm going to make an adjustment. Wow. You can, hear him, you can hear him swear, too, as, as the wind comes across... <laughs> That's an indicator. That's a wind indicator. <laughs> yeah, wind, it is. The wind it indicator is. is. You can hear the yeah. you can hear the cusses. as the moans come yeah, across right. the field. So yeah. do you it, like? Is it an ideal position to be in the middle of the pack? Do you not want to be one of the guys on the far outer perimeter of the shooting group? I'd say, generally speaking, you're right, um, and that's usually because there's a big berm on either side of the range, mm -hmm. and the wind does some funky stuff when it comes up over the berm okay. or gets oh, ready sure. to come over another berm. So usually you don't want to be on the perimeter or the the edges uh, too much. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to be in the middle because then you can you you can you can also look at your your fellow competitors' targets and see you know well he just got screwed I'm gonna I'm, gonna I'm sure I'm sure that berm does a lot because you look at they did that they did that study on truck beds like people driving trucks and guys would leave their tailgates down because they thought that it would be more aerodynamic for the air not to get caught in the bed but they oh. actually found that the air coming over the streamline of the truck 
over the top of the roof, it would actually create a pillow of air inside of the truck's bed that would almost just stay there and circulate. And then that would create this pressure that would just cause the rest of the air coming over the truck to just go over that pillow yeah. of air, so to speak. Pillow is like the total wrong term. But you're talking about a turbulent boundary layer. Yeah, like I'm I'm sure if you're right up next to that berm, you might end up with this kind of yeah. yeah, turbulence going on in front of you. Yep, yep. Sort of like dimples on a golf ball. You know, yeah. you're creating that boundary layer so that it's a little bit. We can talk about that on the some of the bullets are being made now too. No way. Bullets look like golf balls. No, they're okay. no. But <laughs> <laughs> what the new? I got really excited. <laughs> the new rage is actually to to artificially create the impetus for a turbulent boundary layer by putting like a little fiducial mark on the uh, ogive of your of your bullet. So it's a die that creates a little ring that goes around, you know, a couple millimeters behind the mepla, but behind the point of the bullet. And the air catches that uh, feature and creates a turbulent boundary layer over the rest of the bullet. And uh-huh. you increase your BC that way. It's like a force field. Yeah. Around the bullet. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yep. Oh, gosh, this stuff is so cool. We're almost going to have to call this like long range 1003 because we talked about it. I was going to say we're and, on like 1012 and, right now. Right. In I still got to, questions that need to go way, way back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in order to understand everything that's going on with F class, I mean, you got to, this, this is, this is like long range shooting in its purest form. You're not running, you're not, we talked in the PRS one, there's one where you had to set up a, a fort. You know, like you had to build your position yeah. basically before you shot and you have to shoot and you're going super fast, you know, and you're trying to be accurate. And cert- Don't get me wrong, those guys are very, that's awesome. very accurate. Oh yeah, that's but phenomenal. This is this is precision shooting just boiled down to, you just got to shoot precise. Well, and then you're just processing so much information. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, Shoot out some of your questions here that you got before we jump into this scope. I feel like we'll talk about the old the old golden eagle, the scope that's allowed us to even talk about F class around here in general. We'll leave that for our last call. Essentially, sounds good. So here's my here's my going way back questions. We talked a little bit about being on the line, right? Like and a twenty minute time limit. How many? I guess how many times? Like I guess in the context of an F class match. How many times are you shooting throughout the day? Are you shooting one time for 20 minutes? How many shots are you firing during that 20-minute time period? Yeah. yeah. How many people are shooting at a time? I guess it depends on how big on the, the match is yeah. and the range. But. Right, right. Yeah, so like uh, usually you're shooting uh, three to four times, and each time you're shooting either 15 or 20 rounds for record. So you could shoot 80 rounds a day, not including ciders, and if it's a big tournament, you might do that for four or five days in a row. So mm. it becomes almost like this endurance. You're trying to keep your mind fresh. You're trying to uh, keep hydrated so your eyes don't dry out so you can still read the wind on day four, day five. So that's you're, you're shooting, yeah, about 100 rounds a day. It doesn't really get over that. But, you know, accumulate that over four or five days. And yeah. that's why you don't see, even though it would be legal, you don't see 338 Lapua's dominating F-Open. And people just can't shoot well, right? Oh, it's for that many a shots. Lot to handle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no muzzle brakes can be used or okay. suppressors. Uh, I think that's we're trying the only to get that changed. We're right, trying to kind of overturn that, but yeah, that's the only muzzle device you can have as a tuner, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When so you talk that, about a suppressor too, like I was thinking, with that many people on the line, that's got to be maybe impacting your shots. I know when I've shot next to other folks, you know, I mean, they break a shot, you know, right when you're trying to 
you know, crack one off and you're like, oh, wait, hold oh, on a absolutely. second. You know? Oh, yeah. It would be really pleasant if, if, yeah, those were allowed and everyone had access to them. Uh, it would be, I mean, just not having to double up on your hearing protection so you can hear range calls more effectively. It's, it's a big deal for safety. So that would be great if we could, if we could have yeah. that. Now, Niles, you were talking earlier about like fouling your barrel and all that stuff. At at some point, does your barrel reach a certain level of foulty, yeah. if you will, that that over the course of shooting hundreds of rounds over the you know a few days, it doesn't really make a big right. difference. And so that's that's in my log when I shoot. When's the last time I cleaned it? How many shots did it take so that it became consistent where I was shooting it at a thousand? And then, how many shots can I shoot before I have to clean it? Okay. So I keep that, uh, and it, that all depends on the powder you're using, the primer, everything. So everybody's going to be a little bit different. The gun's going to be a little bit different. The type of rifling you use, it will be different on yeah. how, how, it, how it's all affected. With, with my gun, with the, the way it is now, if I clean it, I mean just clean it completely down to everything. i got to shoot about 20 to 25 rounds, oh, okay. and then it's good to go for me for about another 100 rounds, and then it's start all over again. Hmm. Now, right. I don't know what, what your guns... Well, since I switched powders from Varget to Vitivori N140, now I can go a lot longer before I have to clean. So yeah. I'm at, uh, you know, I'll if I clean down to bare metal, it'll take probably 15 for this one to come in, and then it'll be good for about 200 rounds. 200? So I can shoot for two days before I have to clean at a tournament. Oh, okay. And when you clean at a tournament, do you have to go to, like, the sight-in range or something like that to just try and foul it back up? Or, or do you have to just – you clean it at the competition, then you go in the next day, and you're like, well, things are going to be weird here for the next oh, 15 Oh, that would rounds. be horrible. No, okay. no. <laughs> There's this thing. I can't – dude, just, just the, the nerd's mind just – implodes uh, at that point. <laughs> it was painful to hear you say that. Yeah. No. It Going is at f- this point the nerd mind. <laughs> He's running to a quarry somewhere. Just, just quick. There's this thing called a blow-off period, and you get to shoot into the berm to okay. foul your barrel in at the beginning okay. of the day. So. Okay. <laughs> so people don't have a melt. <laughs> yeah. A coronary. <laughs> yeah. Can uh, you good. make, you know, you talk about a multi-day event, the temperature could swing quite a bit between yeah. two days. Do you guys get an opportunity to kind of make adjustments before the shooting starts for that day? Or is it, nope, go with what you have? And is that where potentially where this weight compensator becomes a big asset? Because you're able to kind of make a shift on the fly adjustment without yeah. having to touch your load? Yeah, almost everyone loads ahead of time. You know, they ship their ammo out or you can only carry 11 pounds on the plane. But you know, they'll get their ammo out there and it'll be 500 rounds and it is what it is. You know, you're not going to be loading anything else or pulling bullets. So you got to figure out a way. And I've seen crazy contraptions. I've seen like little incubators that guys will bring to the line and they'll have like a heat source in there. You know, it'll to be keep it as consistent as possible. Battery powered like preheater for their ammo. Yeah, you can Dude. hatch some chickens while you're there. And... <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. You know, that's like part of my log. So you always have all your environmentals when you shoot, so you know exactly what your performance of your gun is. It'll be consistent at low die at 56 degrees with this humidity and stuff. I just like to keep track of all that stuff so I have a better mindset of what my dope was at that, what I needed for this powder charge, because I'm not going to change any of that. Right. So then if it's 56 or 96, I I can figure out what I can start with before I do my cider. Got a hair out of your action, by the oh. way. That was gonna that was gonna attribute to like point one MOA <laughs> of inaccuracy. My yellow lab. 
Yeah. <laughs> but uh, one of your questions was how many people are shooting at a time, mm-hmm. and the big ma- the big uh, ranges across the country are uh, 100 targets wide. So you'll have 100 Ooh. people that are shooting all wow, at the same that's time. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, that takes a lot of people. That takes a lot of ROs. A lot of staff. Yeah, yeah it does. Yeah, yeah. and Holy it's, it's usually volunteer-based, so we've got some dedicated folks in the community that, you know, just love, you know, their fellow competitors and, and hanging out, and they'll sacrifice their own shooting to set up targets and, and shuttle people between pits and the, and the firing line and do all the little things that we take for granted. So it's, it's definitely like a community that supports itself in terms of running the matches and that sort of thing. So that is awesome. Yeah. Let's jump into these scopes here quick too, because these are interesting and we'll kind of make this our, our last call since we went a little longer on you than usual, but, but this stuff has been, has been super cool. I guess I think we're just going to call this long range 1003 F class. We finally talked to the F classers. We've <laughs> we've mentioned F class a number of times in our other podcast. We've found them uh, in their cave. But the Golden Eagle rifle scope here is part of the reason that you know we're able to chat more about F class around the office because now we have a, a reason for people to go out and shoot it or or to understand more about it. And this is the if a scope had, I don't want to say sticker shot because that reflects price, but uh, a spec sheet shock specs sheet shock when you look at this bad boy it's a 15 to 60 by 52 and what's going on i don't even know what else how else to segue into this thing i just gotta ask what's what's going on with this thing from from folks who use it yeah it's kind of an anomaly within our lineup but it's it's a tool and it's good at its job and you know what's important for an f-class scope well uh, second focal plane is important because remember we've got rings that we're shooting at on this target and those rings are measured so they're exactly angular they're they're uh, spe- uh, specific dimensions in MOA and so we're placing very fine holds on that target so we need a reticle that subtends like no thickness at all almost you you're actually that was another interesting thing you're holding off the target most of the time. Yeah. Like a PRS guy might hold off their reticle because they got Christmas trees, they've got whatever else, you know, grid patterns, wind dots. They're holding off the reticle a lot. You guys actually utilize the target to just hold your center reticle off a portion of the target. Yeah, I would say it's about 50-50 now. Half the people hold on the target itself and half the people use like our ECR1 reticle in here. that It's has got some... like a couple. Yep, yep. And they'll, and they'll use those hash marks as they hold. But the important thing is it's got to have enough magnification to see a target really well at 1,000 yards and take that nine ring and divvy it up into quarters so that when, as a coach, I give a shooter you know, a two and three-quarter hold, he's counting in rings, right? So he's at the center. He sees the X ring first. That's one. He sees the 10 ring. That's two. And then he's going three-quarters of the way into the nine ring, and that's where he breaks his shot. That's the wind call. Okay. Um, so you have to have enough magnification to, you know, get that level of resolution. It's We're dealing with weight limits here, so it's got to be a relatively light scope for its paper specs. So that's why you see a 30-millimeter tube instead of 34 or 35 or something like that. It's got to have a decent amount of adjustment. So, you know, most people have, you know, a 20-minute base or a 30-minute base, so... It's got to be in that, you know, 50 to 60 minutes of, of adjustment. It's got to it's gotta be able to pick up Mirage really well. 
So there's a there's a couple trade secrets that you know that we did with this optic to make sure it could it could pick up Mirage and read it really well. You know, especially with accessories like the ASR. And you know, I wanted to I wanted this optic to be accessible. And what I mean by that is there are there are optics out there that are really really high dollar. You know, and they're and they're good, but I wanted to show people that, you know, you don't necessarily need illumination. You don't necessarily need a zero stop for a known distance target scope like this. Let's put our let's put our cost budget, like if we're making this from scratch right now, let's put it in really reliable tracking, really mm-hmm. reliable turrets. Let's put it in really good glass so we're not sacrificing anything there. Which, by but, the way, these turrets subtend in in eighth, eighth MOA. Minute. Eighth minute clicks, yeah. Is so that's teeny, important as well, right? Well, the X-ring is five five inches at a thousand, and you want to favor, you know, towards the center of that X-ring. So each eighth minute um, adjustment is important uh, at that point. But let's put our our cost into the things that really affect your ability to win or not, and then let's get that to the market at a price that a lot of people can can afford and uh, afford to do well. Um, with so that was the goal behind it, and um, it's been it's been pretty rewarding to to hear uh, stories of success and people using it well and appreciating it and that sort of thing. Hmm. So I don't know how have you found it. I love it. The price point and everything for it has been fantastic. And I've always had the Christmas trees and everything else. Yeah. But when you switch to F class and you talk about how you're holding and stuff, uh, it's it. It's totally a different thing. Yeah. Because I haven't had just a regular crosshair since my 1022 in 1976, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I started. Uh, so now you dial what you know, and then you hold off after that. It's yeah. a combination, really. Yeah. yeah. You see a five-minute wind out there, you might dial on three and then hold, hold two. two. Huh. Um, yeah. Okay. You you want to be able to reconcile, you know, the direction and everything in your head, but you don't want to be holding off the target. You don't want to be holding, you know, where you can't have a good point of aim. So yeah. you dial some on, and then you hold some. And Both you guys have bubble levels. Uh, yep. For uh, can't. For can't. Why is why does that matter? I mean, your barrels are circular. Boy, that, it just... it's, when I first started shooting at 1,000 and, and 1,200 yards, it's huge. If you can't your rifle, uh, when you break that shot and it's canted, that, it's not going to go where you think it's going to go. You're... You, your crosshairs might be right on the center, but if it's candid, you know, with all everything that happens with that gun, you pull it, that, that bullet's mm-hmm. going somewhere else. You change else. your optic over bore height. You yeah. Changed. You change everything. Yeah. Everything in that shot is totally different than uh, than how you are when you're locked into a bench sighting it in. And um, so I always, when you set up, um, he's got the Teflon tape. My Teflon is in my rear bag itself, so everything mm. slides. You get everything in there, and you get it solid as you can for a bipod, and you make everything is level because you can change it on your bipod here okay. to make sure your your bubble's right in the center and everything. When you recoil, it comes straight back. So this is, is huge, and maybe at two or three or four or 500 yards, no problem. But when you get out to 1,000 yards, I mean, that's, that's a key, and I think – we talked about it for your team shooting. You have to shoot with a bubble level, don't you? For your coach to yeah. So one of the coaches' things uh, that, that they keep in their mind is you know they're sitting above you and, and looking through a spotter, but they're going down to make sure you know you haven't all of a sudden canted your rifle mid-string or something like that. So it's it's a quick check for them. Are you shooting with both eyes open so one eye can keep a kind of a, a tab on what the bubble level is doing, and the other eye can 
obviously see through the scope or yeah, so, does that have anything to do with it or yeah, is definitely. that a tactic? Both eyes open are pretty important for me just so I don't get fatigued. Um, keeping both mm-hmm. eyes open is a lot easier than than shooting with just one. But yeah, so the off eye, the weak eye, it's looking at the bubble level. It's looking at the flags in, in uh, the periphery. So they send up these um, uh, wind flags. That's one of the indicators that you have to, to learn to read wind. And it's looking at the vegetation, the near, the near, uh, the close by vegetation for pickups and letoffs and stuff like that. So yeah, for me, it's both eyes open. That was great stuff. I tell you, my mind is reached full. <laughs> I, saturated. I love that. Saturated. I, I uh, really knew nothing about F class before going into it. I brought a few notes with me. Was actually a little, wor- little worried that we wouldn't have a ton of talked about. Or that at least I wouldn't have a lot to talk about. Luckily, we had these guys here, yep. and we've talked. This might be our longest podcast ever. I think so. One last thing I'll ask before we sign out. We'll we'll say we'll say kind of that last part was maybe our, or we'll say this is maybe our last call. I'll ask you, Niles. Do you feel like F class has scratched that itch for you that you had before when you said 1200, 1200, You know, ring and steel at twelve, man. Just not enough. Is Boring. F, is, yeah. Yeah, is F class is that scratch the issue? How do you like now that you've started doing it? What what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, you get the little competition. First, it's, it's you against you know when when I'm starting, it's it's me against me. You know, I'm got to read the win. I got to get my scores and everything else. And then as I go, I I get pretty competitive. So I I think it's going to be just fine. And if it's not, I also carbon copied his long range rifle so that the ELR rifle, the ELR rifle. So I think. Uh, Probably go out to Atterbury and shoot the one mile. Okay. This uh, summer. Cross training. Yeah. 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 So we so you mix it up a little bit. That's, you know? that's a 338 Ackley Improved, Lapua Ackley Improved with a, a stove pipe for a barrel on Truck that. Truck axle. Yeah. yeah. I like the a, sound of that. Yeah. So, yeah. Last question, too. Sorry. I keep saying last question. What's your guys' groups at 1,000 yards? <laughs> Because now we're not only talking about a hitting steel at a thousand yards. What kind of a group can you make at a thousand yards? Yeah, so you know, I think at the top of like FTR, the the record right now is a two hundred with sixteen X's, and so that means that sixteen of twenty shots went into that five inches, and there were four that were maybe just outside. So at the top end of the sport, it's about a five-inch group now for 20 shots, though. <laughs> yeah. At 1,000 yards, yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Hey, well, there you have it. If you've been listening to Long Range 1001, 1002, and now you just feel like Niles where, hey, man, bringing steel at these long ranges just ain't enough. Now you have a new a new milestone to shoot for. Five inch groups and a thousand yards over twenty shots and with a, a three hundred eight. With a three hundred eight, nonetheless, and, and a lot of great tips and information to help get you there. Exactly. All right. Well, folks, I think I I gotta go like watch a cartoon or something. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank yeah, you guys. Really, thank really you guys. Really appreciate you asking it's me fun. to show up. Oh yeah, it's great having you guys. If you're uh, if you're listening to this and haven't watched it on YouTube, you should go check it out. Uh, we'll have to do maybe like a picture post at least with maybe Ian's or and maybe Niles too, depending on how we can do it. We'll have to get a picture of these rifles. They're incredible. Uh, you can check them out a little bit on YouTube while we talk about them and point things out. But but yeah, like we said, check out Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll post a picture of at least one of these things. They're pretty sweet. So thanks everybody. We'll see you next time, and uh, we'll end it on the old bye. Alrighty, bye bye bye. bye.
All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.